Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 21st episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and I hope everyone had a very Merry Christmas. We are a little late, but we have a gift of our own for you, which is an hour-long conversation with one of the greatest actors of our time, Samuel L. Jackson. Jackson, who just turned 67 this week, if you can believe it, is out with a new movie, which is his latest collaboration with Quentin Tarantino. The two have been working together for 22 years. Jackson played Big Don, a character in the 1993 film True Romance, which Tarantino wrote, and has since starred in six films that Tarantino has directed, most famously perhaps as Jules Winnefeld in Pulp Fiction, but also as Ordell Robbie in Jackie Brown, Rufus in Kill Bill, the narrator in Inglorious Bastards, Stephen in Django Unchained, and now as Major Marquise Warren in The Hateful Eight, which opened in select theaters on Christmas Day and will go nationwide on New Year's Day. Over the course of a 40-plus year career, Jackson has worked with everyone, he's made a zillion movies which have collectively made more money than anyone else in history, and if not all of them are great, they're all at least interesting and worth seeing because he's in them. So, while we would normally take this time to recap things that are going on in the world of awards, we can cut right to the interview this week because there's not a lot going on. People finally have had a chance to rest at least a little bit and recharge their batteries ahead of the nominations and then phase two of the award season thereafter. So let's focus on this conversation. We touch on a wide variety of topics, everything from how a stuttering boy who grew up in the segregated South became an actor famous for his voice, his monologues, and his command, how he struggled with drugs at one time in his life, how his social activism as a young man led him to meet his wife of now 25 years, Latanya Richardson Jackson, who's a terrific actress in her own right, how his attitude about the Oscars has evolved over the years. He's only been nominated once 21 years ago for Pulp Fiction and what he makes of the larger world around him. We talk about cops and guns and the N-word at length. We also talk about his golfing buddy, Donald Trump, and the candidate he intends to vote for, Hillary Clinton, and so much more. So without further ado, thank you for sharing a bit of your holiday break with us, and let's go to the conversation with Samuel L. Jackson. First of all, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, obviously a lot of this is going to revolve around Hateful Eight, but first I want to just get a few things out of the way if I can, and to oh. begin with, <laughs> mm. what does the uh, L stand for, and why did you decide to use it professionally? Why is that uh, important to you? Um, Leroy, and when I joined the Screen Actors Guild, there was a Samuel Jackson, there was a Sam Jackson, there was a Sammy Jackson, and everybody has to have their own unique name. So I just used the L. I thought about changing my name years ago when I was 
just starting to be a professional actor, I was thinking of something that sounded, you know, really uh, something that had gravitas. And my grandparents' name is Montgomery, so I almost changed my name to Jackson Montgomery. That would have been interesting. Yeah. <laughs> now, you grew up, I know, in the South during segregation. And I wanted to ask you how you think that shaped who you became and, and also if movies were sort of a form of escape for you from that. How important movies were to you growing up in that situation? Um well, movies were very important for me in terms of um, seeing the world in a way that you know I didn't necessarily live or perceive it, uh, and knowing that everybody didn't live the same way I lived. Um, I mean, I had I had a relatively you know peaceful and and wonderful life because I had people that loved me and protected me and taught me life lessons that I actually needed in terms of. Uh, carrying myself in the dominant society so I wouldn't be killed Mm -hmm. or worse or injured or whatever. So they were very protective and and very um, teaching in that way. Um, So me going to the movies and reading, I was an avid reader. I've been reading, I guess, since I was like, I don't know, three and a half, four years old. So I read a lot. So I knew the world was very different from the world that I was living in. And in the summers, I would leave Tennessee and go visit my cousin and my mom's sister in D.C. And that world was very different from the world that I lived in, in terms of people's interaction and and where they were able to go or could go anywhere, uh-huh. as opposed to me being limited to where I could go or the kinds of people I could interact with. Um, so I knew the world was very different and movies were very important for me in terms of my fantasy life and forming the idea that whatever happened in my life, I knew I was not going to live in that particular town or in that particular space that I was going somewhere else and that I, uh, there were things I wanted to see, things I wanted to do. And uh, my dream was bigger than that, consequently. So, um, I mean, I remember, you know, when I graduated from high school, before my mom realized that I'd actually um, signed myself up to <laughs> be on this merchant ship, uh, work really? on this merchant ship and see the world. At what age was this? I was 17. Wow. Um, you know, no internet, no computers, none of that. I was writing letters and filling out applications and sending them through the mail from the library. And wow. she got wind of that when I got an acceptance letter. And she was like, what is this? She's like, oh, no, 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 no. You're going to college. It's like, yeah, but I'm, I'm going to get on a boat, see the world. And I was going to be Errol Flynn. Yeah. You know? I was going to be a pirate and hang out in the world and swing right. from ship to ship. Right, and right. Kill people. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, see exotic locales and well, go to ports. In yeah. the end, uh, you know, it's not that far from from that that it's worked out. You've gotten to, through work to. Oh, I've go. been all over the world right. since then. Yeah, right. I mean, having yeah, I filled up. You know, I got extra pages in my passport right now. Yeah, I filled it up. Yeah. <laughs> now, acting in in terms of entering the equation, from what I've read, preparing for this, it was kind of I was kind of amazed to learn that for somebody who is so closely associated with doing great monologues and with a commanding voice and with just the idea of confidence and cool mm. you actually sort of came into acting if I'm if I'm understanding it correctly because of a stutter not necessarily no. I've given it some thought in terms of how I made this career choice and where it came from um, and it's actually what happened was when I was a very small child 
my mom didn't live with us. She was in Washington working. Uh-huh. And I was in the house with my grandmother, grandfather, and my aunt, who was a school teacher. Uh-huh. And she was also a performing arts teacher. So uh-huh. she, you know, had dance classes uh-huh. in the house on weekends. So I had to take tap and modern dance and all this other crap from her. <laughs> and she was also the person that was usually in charge of every pageant and play that was put on by the black school system uh-huh. in Chattanooga for the white education system. Mm-hmm. They, you know, have these showcases where we all had to show that we were intelligent and mm-hmm. could dance, sing, and <laughs> recite things. So she never had enough boys to do those things, and I lived in the house with her. So consequently, I was in everything she yeah. did. So I was performing from a very young age, and I liked applause. And when she left, she left when I was in, like, fourth grade and moved here to L.A. Mm-hmm. to teach school, and I was still there, but I still participated in plays, pageants, and everything else, and I also joined the band, so I was a performing artist at the time, so I played trumpet and French horn and flute, and I did that, and every time they had a play, I volunteered, and to the point where they were going, well, Sam, you had to let somebody else have a chance, <laughs> so I didn't get to do it all the time, but right, I did it. Right. So I've been doing it forever, um, but I also had this dream of being, you know, the black Jacques Cousteau. So mm-hmm. I had this whole oceanography thing in my head. I was still trying to figure out a way to get out of Tennessee right. and explore the world in another way. And I always thought inner space was way more exciting than outer space. So I didn't <laughs> want to be an astronaut. Right. I wanted to see the fish and swim. And I was a competitive swimmer at the time, too. Oh. So I was all about that. So how did you overcome, though, the, the stutter? Was there a, your aunt was able to... Kind I don't know. Um, well, she, she didn't help me overcome it. You know, that was that was a point when she left that I actually didn't I actually didn't talk in school for almost a year really? because every time I spoke, you know, everybody started laughing because I had a really bad stutter. I was that explosive guy, and so and kids laughed, so I didn't talk. So my revenge was to kind of set the curve in the classes so I always made like 98, 99 you're a great student yeah Yeah. so I was the guy they wanted to kill because you know people always thought oh you think you're smart right so, no I, I pretty much know I'm no, smart. No, I'm so you were obviously smart enough to be able to go yeah. off to Morehouse and when you were there it sounds like you had a variety of different lives right I mean it's like just like the couple a couple different right I mean is that how it felt because from what I understand there's the activist there's the athlete and then there was the burgeoning actor and so and there was also the street thug didn't the street thug <laughs> yeah. yeah so I spent a lot of time in the streets in Atlanta too so how as you look back at that time in your life what stands out most to you and how is it that you ended up pursuing the coming out of that focused on the acting track as opposed to one of those other tracks um, I don't know. Acting became the thing that I fell in love with the most, that I connected with in a very visceral way. It was the thing that, you know, made me want to get up and go to class. I mean, the other classes I just went to because I had to, um, and I was trying to keep my grades up so I didn't get drafted. Uh, and um, when I started doing public speaking and getting in plays and doing uh, taking you know styles of acting and all those things. Those were things that I really wanted to get up and go and do, uh, and that was my you know, major focus at the time. And were you sort of warned off of the activist track because things were getting really hot in a sense? Mm, that was that. Um, I did have some some problems with the uh, FBI uh, at a certain time in my life, um, summer '69. Uh, they ended up at my house telling my mom she needed to get me out of Atlanta before I got killed. Uh, and uh, she did that. 
she sent me here. Hell yeah. Uh, and, and I took a job for a minute. I worked at the uh, BPA, Bureau of Public Assistance. I was uh, an eligibility something. but Like a social worker kind yeah, of. Yeah, but I went to people's houses and evaluated their um, I guess eligibility for social assistance, for public yeah. assistance. You know? yeah. So I ended up meeting a lot of different people all over town doing that. But you were not necessarily focused on trying to advance your acting career when you were in L.A.? No, I didn't even think about it. It never occurred to me to, you know, I mean, I would go up to Hollywood Boulevard and walk around and look yeah. at the stars on the street right. and, you know, do that kind of stuff. And I had a couple of friends who were aspiring to be actors, but, you know, I was, all, I was always thinking I was going get to get back to school and do the things that I needed to do to get in it. Plus, theater was more exciting to me and more accessible to me than movie-dom. Mm-hmm. So um, when I got back, when I finally got back in school, I just plunged into the theater, and uh, that's where I met my wife, Latanya. We met when I got back, uh, and we were in all kinds of things. We had um, we had the Morehouse Spellman Players, which was our schoolwork that mm-hmm. we had to do. Um, we also had a theater called Black Image Theater, which was a revolutionary guerrilla street theater that we did where we made up our own things and did things that were about you know, the world in general, mm-hmm. or as we used to call it, a hate whitey theater, because we used to do that, you know, we used to do, you know, we'd do shows, and right. people would pay us to come to, you know, Georgia Tech or some other, you know, big white institution, and we'd going down the aisles playing conga drums, and right. it's like, die, whitey, so black folk can take over, and they'd be like, oh my God, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> so we had that. Um, I also worked at an improvisational theater across town, um, the Academy Theater, and I also did children's theater for wow. them, improvisational children's theater. So I was doing all this stuff thinking, and that was also a theater, theater company we started called Black Image Theater. Ah. So we did all these things thinking that we were preparing ourselves or getting all the experience we need needed to go into New York and jump into the big actor pool in New York, which turned out to be, you know, the exactly correct thing, mm-hmm. the exact correct thing that we, we actually should have been doing. Uh, so that consequently, when we got to New York, she immediately got a job in the first touring company of For Color Girls. Yes. And she was a lady in red, so she went on a national tour. Yeah. And I started to work, too. I didn't start to work in major productions, but I I went to work in a couple of um, small theaters off Broadway, mm-hmm. uh, Henry Street Settlement. And then I went to work at the Billy Holiday Theater in Brooklyn and eventually ended up going to work at the Public Theater and eventually ended up in Negro Ensemble Company. Yes. Uh, and we should note, I... Your wife's a terrific actress as well. We were just yeah. saying about Raising the Sun. I loved, loved her in that, and I know she's done so many other things. But yeah. She was just in that HBO thing, Show Me a Hero. Yes. So she's been nominated, I, I think, the Critic Circle. Yes. Yeah. Well, terrific. And now when you guys were fresh in New York, I think you moved there, it said 76. Summer, um, October, Halloween night, Halloween 1976. Night. We wow. drove into the village. We were going to stay with some friends of ours, and we drove right in the middle of that parade and I had no idea what that was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you guys were there, it sounds like for those first few years, you met a lot of other fellow actors who mm. have also gone on to do big things. And yet, from what I've read, you were not going to necessarily do what they did, which was to go to L.A. eventually until somebody, quote, called for you. What did that mean and why was that your, your outlook? Well, it meant for me that there were there were there were friends of ours who would leave L would leave New York and come to LA for pilot season. Right. And some of them would stay 
And they were actors who worked a lot in New York. And all of a sudden, they were here, and I didn't see them anymore. I mean, I didn't see them on TV. I didn't see them in the movies. They weren't even doing extra parts. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, it was like I would rather be here working than out there searching for work and losing touch with, you know, the progress that I'm making as an artist. Yeah. Uh, and I was, I, was, I was very fortunate that I was working in places, you know, like Negro Ensemble Company and, you know, I ended up doing what, A Soldier's Play, which won a Pulitzer Prize. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in um, the original company of Two Trains Running, August mm-hmm. Wilson play at Yale Theater with Lloyd Richards, mm-hmm. and I was also in the original piano lesson. Yes. I was the original Boy Willie in piano lesson at Yale. So I was doing plays, Pulitzer Prize winning plays, mm-hmm. and I was learning stuff and growing as an artist, so there was no need of me, you know, leaving that to come here. But you know, I, early on in my acting career, I had the I had the stupid idea that acting worked like other jobs. You know, there was a mailroom position, and then you got a desk, and then you did some other stuff, and you became the boss or whatever. So I assumed, you know, I would do some theater, and then maybe I'd get a great commercial or be on a soap opera, and then I'd end up on a TV show, and then I'd end up in the movies. I thought that was a progression. Mm-hmm. It didn't occur to me that that wasn't how it worked. Right. There's no sometimes no rhyme or reason, right? Yeah. Now, as it happened in your case, I believe the sort of the beginning of that first break started when Spike Lee saw you in a soldier's play, right? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Um, I I got jobs. You know, I used to go to I used to go to Boston once a year and get killed by Spencer and Hawk. Uh, I also did Hawk. Um, I did you know. Coming to America. So I did one movie or so a year, mm-hmm. small part or a TV show or mm-hmm. whatever, but I did that before I left Atlanta also. Okay. So um, I was getting little jobs like that. And I was Bill Cosby's stand-in for like three years on the Cosby show when it first started. What does that mean to be a stand-in for Bill Cosby on the show? Well, I would go, we would go to work on Mondays. The cast would read the script and do the blocking, walk around the house and do the stuff while the cameras followed them. And it was our job to write down wherever our characters went. And then we did it for the next two days while they worked on the camera moves because they shot the show live. Gotcha. So I got to be Bill Cosby for two days. <laughs> I walked around the house with his sweaters on and did right, all that. Right. So <laughs> I, was, I was actually doing all those things. When, when Spike came to see a soldier's play, he told me he was at NYU and he was going to make movies, da 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 And then he did uh, She's Gotta Have It, and I didn't hear from him. So I'm kind of like, okay, typical. <laughs> right, right. Typical. You know, this guy tells me he's going to do something, but right, he doesn't do it. Right. Uh, and then um, he called me to do um, School Days. Yeah. And I did one day on School Days. It's kind of like, really? <laughs> This is what he was talking about. Right. And then do the right thing the next summer. So yeah. every summer I did a Spike Lee job, and the jobs got bigger and bigger. Um, but um, Well, you joked, that, didn't you, that when, that when you presented him just recently with the honorary Oscar, that you did that each summer, and then there was, you had to miss one summer because— thing it wasn't there you were at well I didn't miss that summer it was it was about to happen but I was in rehab yes when he called me to tell me he was going to make the movie which movie was this gonna be uh Jungle Fever ah. he um called me to tell me he was gonna make Jungle Fever but you know by that time I was in rehab uh recovering from my cocaine alcohol whatever everything addiction mm-hmm. uh and they weren't gonna start till I got out Anyway, so I was like, okay, cool, so I'm ready. So by the time I got there, I had done all the research, and Gator, Gator, Gator was the thing. So when I did that particular movie, um, 
it was an interesting kind of summer because they were shooting, I think they were shooting New Jack City or had shot New Jack City. So it were like these dueling crackheads on the street. So Chris Rock was playing Pookie in, in New Jack and I'm playing Gator in Jungle Fever. But Gator turns out to be the character that people connected to yeah. most because, I mean, I didn't play his addiction as the problem. I played his using people and taking advantage of their goodwill as the problem. And everybody had a brother, cousin, son, something, daughter, anything that had done that because crack was like an epidemic. So everybody had a relative that had done something really bad to them and broken their hearts. So that character connected really great. And um, that was an award created for me at the Cannes Film Festival for supporting actor, and nobody's ever received it since or before. And I won the New York Critics or New York Film Critics Award for Best Actor. And all of a sudden, you know, I had this game I used to play with my agent where I would call her and say, the Hollywood call? And she'd go, no. <laughs> and I called her that one day, and she said, as a matter of fact, yeah, they did. I'm like, really? She said, yeah, apparently they gave you some award at the Cannes Film Festival, and now people want to see you in Hollywood for this movie. And I came out and did. Uh, ended up doing White Sands. That's great. Now, around that time, sort of, I guess, within a year after Jungle Fever had suddenly kind of exploded, believe you crossed paths for the first time with Mr. Tarantino, and that was not necessarily the most pleasant experience, ironically enough. Now, here we are, 20, whatever, 24 years later, you know, talking about another movie you've done with him, I think mm-hmm. number six, but at the time, uh, what happened and what were your initial impressions of him? Um, it was my, it was, it was an audition for um, Reservoir Dogs. Uh, and I got there. I was supposed to audition with Tim Roth and Harvey Keitel, and when I got there, neither one of those guys were there, and that was these two guys, you know, um, and I didn't know what their job was, but the casting person was there, and these two guys were there, and they were reading with me, so I assumed they were readers, and they were awful. You know, I'm in there, like, busting my ass and, you know, rocking out the audition, and these guys were horrible, so... You know, and they were like, "Okay, thanks." And I left, and I left there thinking, "Wow, how they hired those two guys to be readers with people?" And it's like, "You can't. I mean, you either look like you're overacting, or you're as bad as they are." And so I didn't realize it was, you know, Quentin and Lawrence Bender, the producer, uh, until I saw the film at Sundance, and I went up to Quentin, and I was like, "Wow." Your movie was great. You're the dude that, oh, wow, you're the dude from the reading. And he's like, yeah, how'd you like the guy who got your part? That's a weird thing. Because he remembered me, and I'm like, your movie would have been better with me. I mean, that guy was okay, but, you know, he is a soap opera actor. Right, right, right. (laughs) Now, just just a year later, you sort of worked with him for the first time, because didn't you, with with True Romance, that's a script by him, right? Mm -hmm. So what was it like the first time that you delivered some of his dialogue in a movie because there's something that people that, that just sort of sets him apart, isn't there? Actually, <laughs> actually, it wasn't his dialogue. No? Yeah. We were doing, that was this scene, Tony, Tony Scott uh, had us doing this scene and it was, I guess, they had done the scripted dialogue before I come. I'm out buying food. Okay. So there's this whole scripted passage about cunnilingus and right. all this other stuff. And them saying, no, I would never do that. Blah, 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 right. blah. And when I walk in, 
Gary Oldman asked me the question. He said, Big D, you eat pussy? I'm like, yeah, man, I eat the pussy butt every motherfucking time. You know, and that's just the first thing that came into right. my mind. That wasn't scripted. So this was your improvising. And we did we did like a 15-minute unscripted scene about cunnilingus that I looked at Tony Scott and was like, this will never be in the movie. He was like, yeah, 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 but it's great. <laughs> so I was surprised that they even kept, kept you know, the party in that I actually did. <laughs> so now the next year is the first time that you were actually directed by Tarantino on Pulp Fiction. I just wonder, how did you learn that he'd written the role of Jules for you, which is a quite Well, he actually didn't. People he seem didn't. to assume that. He actually wrote the role with Lawrence Fishburne in mind. And Lawrence didn't want to do it, which was oh, okay. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. I mean, I was in that place in in Hollywood when I first got here. I realized every script I read had Denzel, Fish, Forrest Whitaker's, maybe Morgan, somebody's fingerprints on it. Right. I didn't care. You yeah. know, it's like, okay, fine. Yeah. They don't want to do it. Let's go. Yeah. So, you know, it was a job for me. So right. um, I didn't know that. So everybody assumes that because that's, you know, that's the fable that right. circles around it. it but he did tell me he was going to send me a script okay. so apparently he had already had that conversation with Fish when I saw him at Sundance he did say I, I have the script that I, that I wrote and I'm going to send it to you I want right. you to read it so I was in West Virginia doing a movie when I got it and I read it and I was like oh my god I couldn't believe it so I like flipped it over and read it again cover to cover right? twice in a row wow. I was like whoa okay so if the Weinsteins let him make what I just read, this is right. going to be a great movie. Right. Now, I don't know if everybody's going to like it, but I know my friends are going to like it, right. and I'm going to love being in it, and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> so um, that was how that happened. So you get you get the part, you're reading some of these monologues, that you're, whether it's Ezekiel or Royale with Cheese, or you know some of these some of these moments that 21 years later people are still watching on a loop on YouTube or whatever. Mm -hmm. How do you go about learning them and B, what's it like delivering them? I know that you actors learn their lines, but I wonder, do you sit in the bathtub and just like read it a hundred times? I wonder what your technique is of uh, learning lines like that and, and what's it like? I don't actually have one. No? Um, I can read something like three times and kind of know it. Really? Yeah. It's just been one of those things that I've had. Um, then I'll go back and I'll start breaking it down and looking at, you know, what leads to what and what what sentence connects to this sentence and what idea am I trying to convey when I say this part of mm -hmm. it to this part of it to this part of it to this part of it. And I break it down like that from beat to beat to beat like we did in the theater uh, and do all that kind of analyzation. But, you know, learning is the easy part. And you've continued to have great monologues like that right through the stew and, and Hateful Eight. And I just wonder for you, as you look back, is there one that was sort of the most delicious to deliver in a way? You know, is there one that you enjoyed doing the most? Um... Not really. You mean, I enjoy the conversations because they're, you know, genuinely funny and interesting conversations to have with people. I mean, even even down to, I mean, when when John and I are driving in the car, from driving in the car and talking about his trip to Amsterdam and, you know, the Royale with cheese to getting out of the car and saying, wow, we need shotguns, how many guys are up there, to walking to the elevator and then, you know, talking about... Um, um, Mrs. Marcellus and you know all that other stuff and dude getting thrown out the window because he gave her a foot massage then having the foot <laughs> massage down the hall having that conversation uh, coming back to the room and knocking on the door and going into the killing room I mean it's hard to find somebody who can write something that flows that well yeah. um, 
there's not really a monologue, but it's between two people, and it's still interesting, but it's right. enough stuff that it feels like a monologue right, right. that you're talking for literally 15 to 20 minutes right. in a film, and that's so unusual because your average film is only one-third dialogue, and mm-hmm. the rest of the stuff that you're doing, looking around, running, chase here, drive there, close this door, open this door, <laughs> walk up the stairs. So when Quentin writes a script, you know that you've got a film that's almost, you know, six-eighths dialogue, and it's going to be great to do. I mean, even in, 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 in Hateful, from that monologue about Bruce's son <laughs> up through when I pull that gun on Jennifer and tell her to drop the gun, and I start, you know, breaking down everything that I've been looking at since I got in that room and how I figure it all works and what's up with the stew and da-da-da-da-da <laughs> and, you know, many in Mexicans right. and the whole, you know, to all of that. It's just, you know, those are like delicious and wonderful things to be able to do. And um, I don't know anybody else that does that better, especially, you know, in a cinematic sense. Sure. Do you remember those forever? Like if somebody, you know, if, if you had to for whatever reason, if somebody came up and said, you know, Ezekiel or Royale with cheese, mm-hmm. you, you, you can do it instantly? Mm-hmm. And, and which one do you get asked to do the most? Oh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel? Yeah. So does it have any larger meaning to you in your own life or just kind of a fun fun just one of those things one of those things yeah I mean, it's like when people say people say you know what they call a quarter pound of cheese in France and I say no what because that's what I say in the movie right and most people go come on <laughs> and there have only been like six people that realize I'm doing a dialogue from the movie right. and they tell me they'll say Royale with cheese and I go oh Royale with cheese <laughs> And they're so happy because we've actually done the actual yeah. dialogue from the film. But only about six people have ever done that. That is funny. That's yeah. good. So with Pulp, it seems like it just changed everything in a sense for you, right? I mean, there's the Oscar nomination, first of all, which must mm. have felt good. And the fact also we should note that for you, it's, it was an unusually late kind of career breakthrough, right? That usually happens for people generally in, in this business when you're in your 20s, 30s. You were... 46? I don't know. I, that's what I've read. So if you're yeah. 46, I mean, so first of all, Oscar nomination, was that was that special to you, and what did you make of the whole experience? Um, Let me say this. Yeah. That when Jungle Fever happened, yeah. okay, um, just being in New York and not being part of the Hollywood scene, uh, getting caught up in it, and the Cannes Film Festival, New York Film Critics, and a couple of other people, you know, said it was awesome, da 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 So people were talking to me about oh, Oscar nomination then. And when the Oscar nominations came out that year, I didn't get nominated, but that was like three people from... Um, Bugsy. Bugsy. So my wife and I said, well, let's go see Bugsy. So we went to see Bugsy, and we're sitting there, and at the end of it, we looked at each other and we're like, Really? Really? Yeah. yeah. And she actually cried about it. And I think that was the thing that kind of broke us about the whole Academy Award milieu and whatever mm-hmm. it is. So when I did get nominated, it immediately, you know, that was immediately bullshit started immediately. <laughs> because all of a sudden, you know, there were these phone calls going, um, uh, we... 
are going to nominate John for Best Actor and you for Best Supporting Actor because we can't have both of you in the same category. And I'm like, okay, whatever that means. And then all of a sudden I start going to these things and people start telling me, well, you know, um, you were amazing in that movie. You know, I really like to vote for you, but you know Martin Landau's been nominated like four times. And I go, yeah. I said, you know, that's, this might be the last time he has a chance. I said, oh, so it's an age thing? And they go, what? And I go, well, Morgan Freeman's old too. Is he going to win? <laughs> and they go, what? what? You know, so I, I was already cynical about it right. at that point. So the more things I went to that I didn't win, the more I got it. Yeah. You know, and Martin Landau was winning, and then Raul Julia died. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, oh, shit. <laughs> okay. That's it for the Golden Globe. Right. Hang that up, right. you know. <laughs> So, um, you know. Well, you have one of the great reactions uh, when, yeah, when the Oscar. I, I think I might be the only person that's ever reacted honestly when my name wasn't called. Because even though you know you're not going to win, right. and you're sitting there and you're saying to yourself, maybe they're going to get it right this time. Right. <laughs> just maybe they'll get it right this time. And they didn't. And I didn't think about the camera. I just yeah. went, oh, shit. <laughs> you know? But and, you know, that's how everybody must actually feel. Yeah, you don't want to sit there going, yeah. oh my God, this is so wonderful. You want to, oh, fuck it. And fuck meanwhile, it, by the it, way, it, Martin Landau's still going strong here 20, uh, 21 years later. Yeah, and yeah, still only 13 people have seen fucking Air Wood. Wood. <laughs> mm-hmm. So going beyond that, you've done, as we say, a bunch of Tarantino collaborations, obviously, since mm-hmm. then. When you get a script from him, is it an automatic yes? Do you have to even read it? Or is there, you know, is there anything he could send you where you would be like, I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't feel like that. No. Nothing. No. I mean, I automatically read it. Um, I mean, every time he sent me a script, he said, I just wrote a new script. Read it. And it's Kill Bill. And I'm like... Not so sure. Okay, it's a great script. Yeah. yeah. Where am I? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he's like, what'd you think? I said, script is awesome. Yeah. Who you want me to be? You know, he's like, well, not that many people you can be in the script. Right. And I go, okay, well, um, I'll be the piano player at the wedding. Right. And he's like, okay, cool. Because <laughs> I get it. You right. know, when I right. read um, um, Inglorious, I was like, now you know I don't speak French. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to hire a French black guy to do that. And I'm like, Oh, you're not even going to give me a chance to learn it? And he's like, come on. So I'm like, okay, well, what am I going to do? Oh, voiceover. He's like, you got it. And so, you know, it's that. So I get it. He doesn't always write for me, and it's fine. But if there's something in there that I can do that will make the film better or I can go in that spot and sit in the church with them and kind of enjoy being there watching Uma do what she's doing and you know, say some stupid shit like <laughs> "Love Me Tender." Right now, we're the ones that I play you... "Love Me Tender." <laughs> <laughs> well, when you when you got the scripts, it seems like the ones that might have felt most immediately like these are these are for me might have been Jackie Brown. Was Jackie Brown an instant like this is something cool? Yeah, yeah, um, all of them probably. But come yeah. on, I mean, yeah. yeah, Jackie Brown. It's like. He said, yeah, I got Pam Greer and she's going to be Jackie Brown. I'm like, wow, okay, cool. So I'm going to be in a Pam Greer movie? Right. Hell yeah. Because you, you, know? you grew up on yeah. the black And I knew I wasn't Lewis, right. so I was like, okay, I'm Ordell. And right. he's like telling me, you know, I really wrote Ordell for myself, but I'm, I'm going to let you play it. Right. Go, really, Quentin? Yeah. For real? You know, so he's like, so yeah, I, I sit and do Ordell's lines all the time. Go, yeah. Yeah, that'll be right, fine. Yeah. Was Django, though, was there any... 
hesitation, any pause about saying yes to Django in light of the fact that, as you yourself have said, this guy was, quote... The most hateful Negro in cinematic history. Thank you. No, yes. not at all. Why that would was, that not give you any pause? Because, I mean, it's like... As much as I would have loved to have been Django, uh, and I knew, you know, that if it had been 10, 15 years ago, I'd be Django. Right. I knew that this character was very important to this story. And there's a dynamic in the story that a lesser actor would have messed up mm-hmm. totally. Because yeah, too many people are concerned about what the people sitting there watching the movie are going to think about them. I don't have that issue. You know, if I'm the bad guy, I want to piss you off. Mm-hmm. I want you to go home and want to kill me. <laughs> you know, I don't want you to go home and say, man, that was. That was all right. Yeah, I know. I want you to like sit there while the movie's going on and go, oh, no, <laughs> you know. So when I'm reading Stephen, I'm like asking Quentin, are you sure you want me to go as far as I can go doing this? He's right. like, well, show me. Because he wrote it. Right. But he really didn't know. Know what you could do with it, yeah. Because uh, as black as I think Quentin's consciousness is <laughs> and sensibility is, right. Until you have somebody who's a human being that's standing there that understands what the people that that person is persecuting feel or how that person can look at those people and do that to them, you really haven't seen your character. You wrote it and you have a feeling about it, but until it happens, I mean, there's all kinds of discoveries that were there. And... You know, for for what it's worth, the Stephen that's in Django is the nice Stephen. Because we shot stuff that Quentin just said, I just couldn't. <laughs> it was that bad. I just couldn't. I'm like, dude, you asked me to do it. Right, right. I, I want my performance right. on screen. He's like, well, maybe one of these days I'll do like a, a five-part miniseries on Amazon <laughs> or something. That's everything that I shot. Because... Oh. That's stuff there it really that is so rich. I mean, not just mine, but Walton Goggins, right. that's stuff. Wow. That's stuff that was done <laughs> that's just not there. So the Stephen that people hate is really the nice Stephen. Interesting. Quentin's like, I don't want you to get killed. Right, right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the excuse. Well. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
I know this is something that you're probably absolutely sick of talking about, but as long as we're on the topic of, you know, how people perceive things and, and whatever, how audiences do, and also how, you know, where Quentin's coming from, a lot of people, including Spike Lee, a lot of people who, you well, know... I always use Spike. It's other people that do that, too. Well, because here are your two, yeah, your two key collaborators okay. throughout your career, right? Two uh-huh. of your key. Why is it that it upsets a lot of people, the, the use of the N-word in his films, particularly because coming from a white filmmaker, white writer, white director... Why does it bother them, but it doesn't bother you? Or maybe it does. Because it's literature. It's art. I mean, the artist that wrote it is expressing something through the mouths of characters that is genuine, is real. It's not artifice. It's, it's real. I remember when I did Fresh, and people loved that movie, and then all of a sudden, when they realized, boy, is Joaquin, this Jewish dude wrote it, it was like... Oh, what the hell? I'm like, really? Right. Now it's not valid because dude's not black? You know, write your own story. Tell it. You know, when I did Pulp Fiction, the Hughes Brothers, you know, oh, man, homeboy can't be saying nigga like that. I'm like, um, we said nigga like, I don't know, like 300 times in Minister Society. Oh, and your mom is white, right? Nigga, they ain't got nothing to do with it. I'm like, so it's bullshit. It's either you can't be a censor and an artist. And, I mean, how many times this nigga used in Chirac? We well, haven't heard that. Right. We haven't heard that. You know, nobody complained about it in 12 Years a Slave. Right. And that's one song where they sang, nigga, what, 30,000 30, times in one verse. But if the, is there any distinction? I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I don't. I know a, what you're doing. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's one of those things where if you haven't been in a place where you've heard the word over and 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 over, then your sensibilities are different or you're from a generation that only hears it in rap music and it's a congenial term for you and them or you hear it, you know, some other way, but contextually you don't get it. I grew up in a time where I could see it written on a wall. I could hear it coming out of somebody's mouth. You know, and I'm probably the first time I was ever called nigga was probably in my house. You know, nigga, you crazy? Yeah, yeah, that's something happened. Right. And, but if you're not in a place where you understand that people treat you like you're not there, so when language is flying, they don't care if you're standing there or not. You know, I heard it when I was a kid spoken by adults to other adults, white people speaking to white people, white people speaking to black people, you know, talking about other people or that person that they were talking to, you know, as in you niggas. And I've heard it. So it's not like, you know, he's making up something that's not genuine, especially in a time where you have people who are talking about other people. When they talked about Indians, they didn't say the Indians. They said the Redskins or whatever, those Redskins or whatever. When when they spoke of black people, nigga was just one of the words they used. I mean, Quentin, I never heard him write coon, jigaboo, spook, spade, you know, spear chucker, porch monkey. What word do they want him to use when he has characters speaking about a person that he specifically wants them to know who they're talking about? How do you describe me? In a Tarantino movie, if there are rednecks standing to talk, oh, uh, you know, the tall guy, 
the well, but know, that for a period piece, the, that the tall, totally darkest skin fellow. <laughs> well, but for for a period piece, I I get that more than what about like pulp or something where it's more. Nobody uh, said shit when they said in the uh, Godfather when they said we uh we uh we keep the heroin in the darker people, you know, for right. the niggas and the spicks and that. I ain't I didn't hear an outcry. Right, and it doesn't. And again, just continue. Last last follow up on this though, it doesn't. In your view, like for the younger generation that didn't grow up with this all around them, does it perhaps in the but same way? But they have in their music. Right, but is that something that and we... And their friends. I've been on the subway train and I heard somebody going, oh, nigga, you crazy, boy. I turned around some Asian kids. Oh, my God. Talking to each other. Is that something that you hope will go away or you're just kind of accepting? No, I don't care. You don't care? No. Because the argument from a lot of people is that whether it's the N-word or the violent, the gun violence or whatever, that when you see that in a movie, it's not the only thing that will, in the case of gun violence, hopefully that's not the thing that's driving people to do it. And I know that's the big debate, but there are some people that go and reenact or do repeat whatever they, they see. We know Bullshit. that. You how don't do you think make, so? How do you make a Western without gunplay? I grew up watching John Wayne, Gene Autry, Roy Rogers, whoever, shooting people. Right. I was I was extremely happy when the Wild Bunch showed up and I saw somebody's chest explode. Right. <laughs> it was like, oh my God, they're not just grabbing their chest and falling down. So, it's just blowing up. Right. This is great. This is awesome. Right. But I got cap guns every Christmas. Right. I had every Western television show that was on. I had I had have gun will travel guns. I had the rifleman rifle. I had uh, uh, Johnny Yuma's sawed off Winchester. I had uh, 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 Jesus. I had a belt buckle Derringer. You know, like a Yancey Derringer. Right. I had every gun made. We shot each other every day. <laughs> But nobody went in the house when we had a dispute and got their got their parents' guns and came out and shot at each other. So what's we changed? We just didn't do that. I don't know. Stupidity, parents, yeah. Yeah. Uh, talking to kids, people understanding the reality of that's not real and, and, and this is real. Mm-hmm. This is not how we live. This is not what we do. I mean, people watch Scarface, you know, when 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 Scarface became the the template. Right. For you know, drug dealing or coolness or whatever, you know, everybody wasn't running around like, "Hey, hello to my little friend," and coming out of their house and shooting people. Come on, right? You gotta have common sense, right? You know, it's entertainment. It's what it is. It's joy. People don't sword fight every day. You know, do do you really think that if people had real lightsabers, they'd be going to school <laughs> chopping each other up every day if they could? Well, probably because people are stupid. There's a lot of stupidity. You know? Well. Okay, so now we've spent a lot of time talking about Spike and Quentin, but you've done a lot of movies apart from them, obviously. And one mm-hmm. of the, you know, one of the things that we should know, and and this is a stat that you know, but I don't know if all of all of our listeners know, is that your movies have collectively grossed something like four point six billion, which is more than anyone else ever. And I wonder, because there's been such a variety there, the franchises like Star Wars, and obviously most recently the Marvel movies. There's mm-hmm some remakes like like a shaft and then there's obviously the standalones like snakes on a plane and coach carter and so many others it just seems like there's no rhyme or reason to how you pick your roles is there that i'm missing what do you look for when you're considering whether to do something a good story yeah first of all i mean it's got to be a good story uh there are times that you know i choose a movie because it's something i would have gone to see when i was a kid like snakes on a plane actually my friend ronnie you was directing the movie Okay. When I first heard about it. So I called Ronnie. And I was like, Ronnie, are you doing a movie called Snakes on a Plane? He's like, yeah. I'm like, is it Snakes on a Plane? He's like, yeah, plane full of poisonous snakes. I'm like, get, really? Can I be in it? And he's like, really? And I'm like, yeah. So he called New Line, and they were like, oh, my God, yeah. 
So something happened between Ronnie and them. He got fired, and they hired David. Uh, and I stayed on the movie because I'm being a plane full of poisonous snakes. <laughs> hey, come on. And we're over the ocean because right. we're coming from Hawaii. Of course. There's nowhere to put the plane down, yeah. so you got to stay on there. You got to fight the snakes. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with a movie like that? You yeah. know, so I was about it. Right. And then when I get there, they changed the movie to flight Pacific Flight 141. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not doing that movie. Right. I'm doing snakes on a plane. But... Yeah, you choose that movie because it's that. Sometimes you, I choose a film because I want to work with a specific director. Uh, and, it's, you know, I've watched his films. I want to work with him, see mm-hmm. what that's like. But generally, more than anything else, it's always about the story. I believe movies should be entertaining. If you want to learn something or, you know, all that other stuff, watch a doc. You know, I go to the movies to escape. That's what I did when I was a kid. I went to the movies to forget who I was and experience something that I don't normally experience. Um, I like a good, you know, rom-com, fine, mm-hmm. you know, and I like, you know, stuff. But I like crime dramas. Mm-hmm. I like action films. Mm-hmm. I like horror movies. I want, I want to do a really, 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 really great like slasher movie. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. You know, when somebody <laughs> presents it to me. I'm like, I want to be in that. I heard you're a big you martial know? arts guy too. A big martial arts movie. I yeah. watched tons and tons so and tons of Asian films. You must yeah. have bonded with Quentin over that, right? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. Yeah, and you know, I've talked to a bunch of those guys. You know, I'd love to do a film with like Donnie Yen or somebody. Right. Know? I don't want to fight them. Right. I just want to be in the movie. <laughs> with being them. with them. Yeah. So with. Uh, with Hateful, what was the, the aside from Quentin, if, if it wasn't Quentin, what would have drawn you to that movie? It's a Western. I've been waiting to do one, you know, forever. I mean, I didn't get to draw a gun, you know, Django, so. Right. And it was even, uh, you know, it's funny, because you, when, you, when you finally get to do your Western, would you have ever imagined you'd have to go freeze your ass off to do it in, in Telluride? Not too, not too many Westerns. Well, I don't like care that. about that. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, it was a Western. Right. It was happening. You know, the only right. thing missing for me was, you know, standing in the middle of the street, seeing if I was faster than somebody. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's what I've been doing all my life. So, yeah, you've been waiting to do a Western. I mean, you watch Clint Eastwood, you watch all this stuff, and you see a movie like The Unforgiven, and you kind of go, okay, if I want to do a Western, it's got to be as cool or as deep as Unforgiven. And this happens to be that. Oh, yeah. You know, even if I'm saying it myself, it is. <laughs> no, it's great. I love yeah. it. Now, the, the, from doing a Q&A with you and your castmates, it sounds like everybody really bonded mm-hmm. uh, a lot on this one. And during rehearsal, during the shoot, and, I mean, to the extent that Kurt Russell says he, he spent days on the set as a corpse because he just didn't want to miss out. Yeah. So I wonder, what is it that happens on a Quentin set that's so different from other sets that would make somebody want to be around for that? Um, well, I mean, you see what the work is, you hear the words, you, you see the interaction between the people. Uh, and if you've been in there and you've been part of that, you want to see how it plays out and how it feels to be in that space. Um, it's a, it's a party atmosphere. Unbelievably so. I mean, people think, oh, man, that must be serious. All that blood and people dying. It's like a party atmosphere. He says, cut, you know, some music comes on. We sing, we dance, we talk to each other. We laugh about what we just did, uh, figure out how we can do it better or whatever Quentin wants us to do. You talk to people on the crew who are, like, laughing because they've never seen it. Right. And they're like, oh, my God, this is great. So it's it's happening. You know, somebody comes through with a bunch of food. You eat, you know, and you do the next shot. And even like things like marking, what was it like? A uh, certain number of days in the shoot, you guys will have a party or something. Every hundred reels. Hundred reels. Yeah. And what is it? You know, I think you've talked about. He has an unconventional directing style in the sense that you're not going to necessarily get advice about 
you know, blocking or things like that as much well, as we've it, done all that. Right. So it's more about what references to other movies. Uh, well, once we go through the rehearsal period, you know, movies pretty locked. It's all about what Shadi's going to do. So we rehearsed it like a play. So we know where we're going, where we're going to be in a specific spot or whatever. So once we get in the physical set, then it's about what camera you're going to use, what angle you're using, is he pushing in, is he overhead, is he coming down, is he doing this. So we make adjustments for that. But other than that, it's like playtime, you know. So as a creature of the theater, you really like the rehearsal. I love rehearsal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it gives you time to find out who people are you're talking to, why you're talking to them, what you're talking to them about, how you feel about them, how they feel about you. Right. So that uh, a lot of people think that Things need to be spontaneous. You know, no, it's <laughs> planned spontaneity. Right. It's supposed to look spontaneous. You're supposed to know where you're going because there's a light there that's got to be on you. There's a camera there that's got to hit a mark. You got to hit a mark. You got to be specific. You pick a drink up. When you drink it, put it down on that spot. You know, it's 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 technical, but you got to be artistic, free, and technical and precise mm-hmm. at the same time. That's the game. Yeah. In the case of this film, it seems like your character sort of holds almost the rosebud to the movie in the sense of the Lincoln letter, or am I overanalyzing that? I don't know. What, to you, did you feel that has great significance beyond what is obviously just stated? I mean, what in the, there are a lot of unanswered questions in this movie. Yeah. I mean, for the audience. are they? Do you get questions like those answered for yourself? Like, for instance, was, was Bruce uh, Dern's son intimate with, uh, with you <laughs> or, or your— or your privates. Well, I have an answer for that. Yeah. I don't know if anybody else does. Right. I, mean, I don't know. If, but you don't sit and talk to Quentin and say, tell me the We answer. had a conversation about yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and we, we actually shot something that might have intimated whether it was true or not. Right. You know, so there's that. Is it a lie or you know, everybody there is a liar. <laughs> right. Everybody in that room is lying about something. Right. You know, except, except OB, <laughs> the innocent. But right. everybody else in there is got a got has got their own secrets, their own demons or whatever, you know. I wanted to, I I wanted that old guy to go for that gun. That was the only way everybody said I could kill him. I would have just right. killed him. Right. <laughs> but everybody's insisting, no, you gotta legally kill him. Right. So I wanted him to go for that gun. Best story I could come up with and make him go for the gun. Right. Did I did I make it up right. or not? You right. know, it's like the Lincoln letter. Is it real? Is it not real? We established that. Maybe I said it wasn't. It might still be. Mm-hmm. You know, but you also got to get into the place where you say to yourself, where did this black guy who's an ex-slave learn to read, write, and do all these other things and to actually eloquently sit down and say to himself, I'm going to be Abraham Lincoln and write myself a letter. And this is what I would say to myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Last few things are just dealing with sort of the big picture right now. And I wonder, as a member of the black community, at a time when things are, you know, we just had Will Smith on a couple of weeks ago talking about this, and he was saying that he's never been interested in much in politics or social stuff prior to now, but he, he I wants— I can't say that. Well, no, well, I mean, I'm just saying, I mean, like, suddenly he, he feels like he can't just kind of sit silently and watch as— Day after day, there seems to be more and more attention, sort of like what was happening, I guess, uh, it's not for me to compare, but you dealt with in the 60s. And so I wonder, as somebody who is a prominent person and also a prominent member of the black community, what do you make of of the world today, the state of things? I mean, 
some of the crazy stuff that's happening, and also looking ahead to the future where there are some presidential candidates who, <laughs> including one who I believe you've been golfing buddies with, Mr. Trump. Uh, we play a few times. You know, and that, and I'm, I'm sure he's not a not an unpleasant guy to be around. But I mean, are you concerned? What's how would you characterize your feelings right now? Your outlook. <laughs> um, you know, I've looked at the world for a long time. Like we've been kind of shielded from what the rest of the world's been dealing with. You know, I remember first time I left the country in 1980. I went to London. Um, I knew a little bit about you know the Irish and the English and what was happening, and, and then something blew up around the corner from where I was, and it's kind of like, whoa, what was that? And all those Irish terrorists. Blah, blah, blah. And the first time I heard the word terrorist. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you mean? You know. And then I started seeing signs in the tube. Don't pick up untended packages and da da da. And that was the first, you know, if you see something, say something. Mm-hmm. Shit. So I started thinking about it and then I looked around at the world, you know, it's kinda like, okay, that's that's the Catholics and the Protestants. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the crusades. Mm-hmm. And then I started looking at the rest of it and said, Oh, they're still doing that over there too. So now it's the Protestants and the Muslims. They're still doing that? So we're still fighting the Crusades. Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, thousands of years has this been going on? It's going on, but we weren't in it. Americans weren't in it. We had our own little, you know, we had our race stuff going on, and we had the anti-war movements, and we had all this other stuff, but we still weren't in that religious fight, you know? And we were progressing, you know? We were making advances here, making advances there, and you got the cell phone, you get the computer, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the world starts like, okay, this thing connected us to a whole bunch of shit that we had nothing to do with for a long time. And then all of a sudden, Bush and those guys put us in that fight. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we drew blood in that war, we became part of something that's been going on for thousands of years because... It's like, well, you killed my cousin Akbar, da da da, and it's like, oh shit, and that's going back to. So we'll never be out of it now, right? Because people hold on to grudges in that kind of way. So we're the Hatfields and McCoys in the world now. Mm-hmm. So that's happened. The kids that go and fight those wars, as I remember. In the 60s or whatever, guys went to Vietnam and they came home and people hated them. They were baby killers or whatever. And a lot of them became cops because that was the job that was, oh, you had ex-military service. You can become, you know, one of the boys in blue. And because they were so vilified by everybody outside, they formed this blue wall that's now still a part of what that is. But now it's kids coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and whatever. And now they've identified PTSD. Uh But that's not one of the tests they give for people who put on uniforms. So consequently, you got people out there who are used to looking at people as the enemy. Because that's what it was. Mm-hmm. People were trying to kill them every day. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my God. You know, you see a guy, the guy jumps up, like, oh, 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 oh. And so you got that. And young black men are threatening. You know, and it just happens. So all these things snowball and snowball. Now, not every cop in the world is guilty of that. There's good cops and there's bad cops. There's guys who, you know, misuse their authority. And there are guys who watch them do it, who want to do something, but they can't because they got to be part of that blue wall or that blue thing. And until we get somebody policing from the inside out, those things that happen from outside to us 
are going to continue to happen because there's nothing we can do about them. Even if they're wearing body cams and we can see them, that's why every day you can look online and see somebody else getting shot. You can see somebody else getting killed, not just black people. You know, and once when that thing happened in France, we're sitting there going, oh, my God, these terrorists. Blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, I can't even tell you how much that day the thing was happening in San Bernardino. I was in Hawaii. How much I really wanted that to just be another, you know, crazy white dude <laughs> and not really some Muslims, you know, because it's like, oh, shit, it's here and it's here in another kind of way. Now, OK, it happened on an army base and it happened somewhere else. But now it's like they have a legitimate reason now to look at your Muslim neighbor, friend, whatever, in another way now. And they become the new young black men. Well, I, a cop pulls over their car, they got to like, oh, they got to put their hands up and be very nice. You know, oh, officer, how are you? Da, da, da. And they, you know, they're immediately going, I had to sniff the car. Where's the dog? Bring the bomb dog in. Let's smell the car. Let's see if there's any explosives in the car. You got a weapon? I don't believe you. Or if your neighbor next door is, uh, you know, makes model cars or ships at night in his garage and his lights are on and you've been down the street for four years and you never thought anything about this dude. It's like, something's going on in that garage late at night. Uh, if you, I, still, I, I, I saw something, I'm saying something. So, But as a black person who, as you say, has to deal with similar kind of suspicion, just because you're a black person, does it bother you to know that there is a very, very good chance that a presidential candidate in this country will be nominated be, on a platform of saying that, you know, we're not going to let any Muslims in this hate? country? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Am I bothered by it? Right. No. No. There's nothing I can do about it. Right, but I mean, There's you... absolutely nothing I can do if they want to... I mean, there's some other people that aren't as open about what he's saying... Right. ...that are running also. Right. You know, that are just as crazy, that are just as, you know, ill, that, are, that have just as much ill will toward the common man. Right. And not just the common black man, but people who don't have a certain amount of money don't mean anything to them. We're all fodder to those people. Okay? So... When you're talking about, you know, Rubio and uh, come on. So who gets the Samuel L. Jackson endorsement in 2016? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm forever a Democrat, you know, and I'm going to vote for Hillary because, I mean, I love Bernie and I, Bernie's a man of the people, but he can't win. Right. So I got to cast my vote for a person that can keep those other people from winning. <laughs> okay, not to mention, you know, Hillary kind of knows the job. She can hit right. the ground running. Right. There's right. a lot of something. She didn't have a huge learning curve right. like Barack had or some other people had. She can go in there and, you know, and, and, and hopefully she can she can open up the, the skeletal files of those do-nothing assholes that go to work like four times a year and right. not vote on things and threaten them with whatever she and Bill uncovered on them years ago and make them do something. Right. That's great. <laughs> and we can get something done. done. Last question. You just turned 67 yesterday. Happy birthday. Thank you. You've got nothing to prove to anybody except maybe yourself. I don't know. But why is it that you work as as much uh, as you do? I mean, you're you're probably the hardest working guy out there. I grew up in a house of people, man. When I woke up every day, everybody in my house was going to work. And I thought that's what grown people did. And that's what they do. And they didn't even have jobs they liked. I got a job I love. Yeah. You know, painters get up and paint. Writers get up and write. If actors could get up and go somewhere and act every day, I guarantee you they'd be the happiest people in the world. And I am. Well, thank you, and please don't stop. I love watching. I really appreciate it. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you. Awesome. Oh, my God. <laughs> this comes out, I'll be vilified online again. That racist son of a bitch. <laughs> He's such a fucking racist. <laughs>
step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.